This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Good morning, and welcome back in for another episode of For the Good of the Game. My name is John Davis, and I'm your host, and I'm really thrilled today to present another special feature. This episode is focused on the youth sports gap in America. To discuss some of the more salient issues in this gap, I brought two guests on whose experiences approach the dilemma from completely different perspectives. My first guest today is Matt Young. Matt is the founder of Quality Sports Hub, a Vancouver-based company dedicated to providing a pathway to quality sports experiences for athletes, coaches, and parents. Matt is an accomplished athlete, father and family man, entrepreneur, Guinness World Record holder, coach, keynote speaker, and servant leader. He has been recognized as a top 40 under 40 award winner in both Vancouver regionally and Canada nationally. Matt's 2015 TED Talk on fixing child obesity centered on physical literacy, and it's both alarming and inspiring, but more than anything else, it really demonstrates his passion for sport and life. And if all that weren't enough, despite his busy schedule, he's also managed to successfully help raise over $6 million for charity. My second guest today is author Stephen Griffin. Steve is a graduate of both Providence College and the University of Rhode Island with a master's in accountancy. He's a former CPA who has lived in the world of private equity and has invested and been involved in, in, across a number of industries, most recently focused on the sports industry. He served on numerous boards of directors in executive roles and has spoken at industry conferences. His experiences in the sport industry led him to write Front Row Seat, got it right here, Greed and Corruption in a Youth Sports Company. The book explores the growth of youth, the youth sports market and some of the characters who seek to exploit it. Now, Steve is also set to publish his second book, which I'm anxious to read, entitled Lost Locker Room, The Collapse of Global Premier Soccer, which comes out in June. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome both Matt Young and Stephen Griffin to the program today. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you very much, John. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us, John. Well, as with so many... Uh, other meetings that go on today, and I'm sure you guys have not been immune to it during COVID. We have uh, the, the advent of uh, doing this via Zoom, and I really appreciate you gentlemen taking time out of your schedules. We're going to try to tackle uh, three main topic areas today because, quite frankly, with the, with the depth of experience that these gentlemen have experienced, uh, I, it, it's interesting to me that we could probably do a five-hour session, uh, quite frankly, on, on the topic. But the first area I want to spoke I want to talk about a little bit is the one of the background reasons that that I believe the youth sports industry is suffering now, and and that is because of greed in the industry overall. Stephen certainly wrote about it as as part of the subtitle of his book. Matt's identified this in, in a number of different ways, and most recently in the real world, we've seen this in a matter of a, less than a week: the announcement of a super league in soccer, and then the ultimate collapse of it because of the. Uh, almost rebellion, if you will, at all levels from athletes to, you know, even political uh, figures. So um, the greed has really caused a, a number of it, uh, different issues and manifested in different ways. You know, there's pay to play teams and events that promote this all in top down, uh, you know, winner take all mentality. And then we also have uh, the sports specialization issue. We're going to talk about a number of those, but Matt, I wanted to start off with you as if you could um, talk a little bit about some of those uh, factors that you believe uh, have been brought about in the real world by this greed that has kind of per permeated the whole sports industry. Yeah. And you, you make a great point about the exploitation of, of the sports system, especially at the grassroots and amateur level. Uh, where ego and FOMO have been two really primary motivators and drivers for this, this ticket to the, the promised land. Um, you know, fear of missing out. No one wants to, to miss out or feel like they're missing out. And then the ego is the pandering to the parents, really, or the athlete through the parents about, you know, we, you should be here. You've got some talent. I can help you, etc. So we've really moved into a buyer beware situation where you're right greed has absolutely had a, had a really detrimental factor into 
what was once a drop your kids off and, and let them learn a whole bunch of skills, meet new friends, have a good time, have a fun time. Um, and it's, it's really like anything in our society, we, we tend to go from there all the way over to the other side. And then we have to be clawed back into kind of a, a normal control. You can take any sector, any industry and talk about it. But we're, we're really seeing the lack of leadership and governance in sport keep that dial over on the greed side, um, you know, and, and you got no, no one better than Steven who was who right in it, um, who can speak to that. But yeah, that's what we're seeing. And, and unfortunately what's happening at the same time as the, as the money is being made is the participation and value is being lost. So it's not like the two are, are increasing in a symbiotic or, or helpful or useful or purposeful manner or valuable manner the participation is going down at the same time as the greed is going up, which should be telling us something. And that should be telling us just like the, the, as you mentioned, the example of the super league, that that's not what fans want. That's not what the athletes want. That's not what the politicians want for the, the sports system. Well, and I think one of the things uh, that, you know, Stephen highlighted in his book and, and it was in in almost a tangential way is the fact that, you know, the primary purpose of sport besides movement is fun. Kids should have fun. They should enjoy themselves. There's the social aspect. There's the physical development aspect. And when adults get involved on multiple levels, as we saw uh, happen with the company that Steve was working for, um, you know, it, it was, uh, it, were it not for his leadership and foresight and integrity, um, it, it, it might have, you know, gone even worse. So, Steve, I want to talk about a little bit, not to go through the whole book, but, uh, you know, you were hired on to be CEO and and eventually started finding things that were going on that led, uh, really rubbed you the wrong way in terms of just your ethics. And and um, the uh, that led to this whole development of the idea and then eventually led you to write the book. Uh, if, if, if you could kind of capture, you know, on the greed side, what you saw developing and how some of the almost like cottage industries within the industry developed yeah. such that people saw opportunities to make money, which led them down the wrong path. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. And, and I agree. Matt's overview is, is spot on. Um, one thing I would add to it is, you know, I, I still remain um, hopeful and optimistic. I think that the vast majority of people who work in the youth sports industry are well-intentioned, good people in it for the right reasons. People like Matt um, who want to both keep children active and um, engaged, healthy, instill um, skills like time management and sportsmanship and, and all of those things. So I think the industry, despite my book, um, is still in good shape. Um, but, but with Matt's, I'm, I'm with Matt on the thinking that it's gone too far and it's sort of going to hit the wall and it needs to be bounced back and reset a little bit. So my experience really was and has been um, one in which we encountered a company um, initially that we thought was a really attractive investment uh, that operated across multiple sports. Uh, and the thesis was that this business had a little bit more scale than, than most in a very fragmented industry and that we thought we could sort of separate from the crowd by delivering high quality experiences, great value to families and bake in sort of those values that we thought were getting lost. Um, we weren't going to be proponents of specialization. Uh, we weren't going to overhype um, the dream, whether it's the child's dream or the parent's dream. Uh, in fact, my thesis has always been that if we educate the parents and, and really put the numbers in front of them on the likelihood of your child playing at the next level or likelihood of a child ever turning out to be a professional athlete are so small that by acknowledging that you can instill um, a better sense of reality to the parent and maybe even kind of serve as a little bit of a, a pressure valve for the child. Um, not feeling that kind of intense pressure or anxiety to perform. Um, so, so that's sort of the overarching thesis of why I thought the industry was interesting. Um, and we had some prior experience investing in the space and, and did well with it. Uh, what we quickly found was, you know, uh, accounting irregularities, um, misrepresentations on financial performance, uh, related party transactions that weren't disclosed, just sort of a, a, a 
completely opposite culture uh, of what had been communicated to us. Um, you know, management had represented that the company had a culture based on, you know, servant leadership and sort of changing the world, high integrity, financial stability. It's kind of ironic when you look back at the mouse pads that were all around the office with those icons on them that uh, they, they sort of violated, you know, 90% of those core values. Um, so yeah, we uncovered, as I say, we, the board uh, uncovered a lot of these issues. Um, we made a management change. I ended up sliding into the seat as the CEO of the company. And then um, thinking that we probably had uncovered everything possible uh, the company was raided by the U.S. Department of Justice in October of 2019. Uh, it's been pretty well publicized that our largest division, which was a soccer business called Global Premier Soccer, uh, allegedly had committed, um, among other things, a conspiracy to, to commit international visa fraud. Um, we've learned more in the last sort of 90 days, probably, than is even included in the first book. There's been a couple of guilty pleas, um, and I won't say it was systemic, but we've now learned that the tactics that were being used by the management team, the GPS, certain members of the management team to bring coaches in illegally and suppress wages and, and, and so on um, was a little more widespread than anyone uh, had hoped. Um, so further evidence, I think that you've got an industry that's um, not regulated, doesn't have really strong oversight, even the so-called governing bodies um, probably have not caught up with the growth of the industry. Um, and as a result, it's attracted, you know, con artists and grifters and fraudsters that are taking advantage of um, both the size of the market, the lack of regulation, and probably that emotional purchase that many parents are making. Yeah, you started off uh, talking about the statistics. And I think that Sometimes in some venues, some meetings, they're almost overquoted because most parents have heard them at one time or another. But I think it's the blindness to the reality of it, or maybe um, the fact that being uh, overwhelmed or overzealous about their kids' chances. It's, you know, they, they all recognize the stats, but it's not them that, that are doing it. And, and I think sometimes that can be bad. Going off that, in terms of the, the barriers that have developed because of what we're talking about, there are multiple barriers that exist now. You've got, you know, lack of free play. You've got marginalization of PE in schools. Uh, you've got generalization among PE teachers as opposed to specialists. Uh, you've got the cost of sport, regardless of whether it's in or out of school. All these barriers have developed over the years, and it's really caused uh, different issues at different levels. In 2007, I was at the NFL Youth Sports Summit or Youth Football Summit in Chicago, and I had a middle school coach stand up, and he was just exasperated because they had just canceled tackle football in his middle school, and there was no way it was going to come back because of some of these factors. So, Matt, when we look at those barriers, um, what are the, some of the things that, from a quality sport hub perspective, sports hub perspective, that you have with your company and some of the other ventures you're involved in that you're trying to emphasize in order to help overcome some of those hurdles in, in youth sports? Yeah, great question, John. And, and I think the biggest thing is that continuum, like you spoke of. Um, it's not something that you just turn on, it's not one. Everyone's looking for that one answer for why the participation rate has dropped. It's not one answer, it's, it's, it's a systemic. Um, flaw in the whole system. So when you when you talk about your lack of free play, that's kind of zero to five, right? And, and kids, and I hate to say used to, because that makes me sound as old as I am, but you know, kids used to just go out and do stuff on their own and play on their own. And not only is that important for the the discovery of the physical side of the of the equation, it's also important for decision making and connecting synapses and, and doing all that other stuff that that connects into to problem solving later on. So zero to five that starts there and it's no one's fault it's just the way society is gone uh, we we take our kids out of the seats and we move them into a car seat that's got 25 point harness and then we move them into their cradle and their jumper and they're we're, we're really minimizing the amount of movement and it's well intended but it's not actually helping and serving those kids better so starts there then like you said the lack of uh, marginalization of physical education with generalist teachers teaching 
Uh, you would never have a generalist teacher teaching math or science or any other vocation, but you've got it in, in physical education. So that turns that prospect and, and really diminishes the value of physical education. Oh yeah. Okay. We get it. And, you know, John gets an A because he can run around the class the fastest. Steven gets a three uh, because he gets along well with everybody else. That tells us nothing about our movement competency, our proficiency in the development. Uh, we would never do that in any other course, but we've done that in physical education. So as you can see, that's where it really starts. And if we don't have that foundation or base of movement and activity, well, then it's really tough to get into sport. And that's what we're seeing is that the subtle and insidious erosion of movement, not only as the um, you know, industrial revolution came along and everything is being made so easy, you don't have to pedal a scooter anymore because they're electric. You don't have to ride a bike because they're electric. So it's not one thing to your point, it's the insidious erosion. And what that does is it doesn't give the young men and women the competence or the confidence to want to show up, put on a pair of skates or get on a pitch or take a bat and try to hit a ball. It, they, they're not set up for that um, intuitively and innately. So that becomes an issue. Then, like you said, you add things like cost. Um, it's not fun. The, the technology where, where kids are spending up to seven hours, everyone knows the stat, up to seven hours. And like you just gave the example, no parent's going to go, well, that's my kid. Well, I challenge you to actually track your kid for four or five days and you will actually be astonished on how much time they do spend in front of screens which is time that's not spent learning exploring getting to know themselves and developing as a as a, a human being listen as humans we're designed to move um nike said it designed to move they they did a, an entire study and commission but again nobody wants to actually be the person or be that leader that says this is how it's going in the community and it's going to start in the elementary school and then it's going to be reflected in the parks and recreation and then that's going to be connected to the youth sports system we do what we always do in society which is we deal with things in intellectual silos with nobody communicating back and forth and across those channels so you know when we, and when you get into the early sports specialization again you're you're diminishing the repertoire of movement activities for the child because you want them to be in one sport and then you get the parents saying well if they don't show up seven times a week, they don't have the opportunity to play in that one sport. So just through those examples that are almost exhausting to, to, to parlay, you can see how difficult it has become to actually onboard and start with a proper foundation for movement and being active. And then, of course, the sports system is going to suffer because you're going to have less people with the desire, the competence, the motivation or the confidence to embark on those sports their sport journey. Sure. And, and, and Steve, I think you hit on it a minute ago. You said, you know, despite having written the book and exposed the, uh, the, the flaws in the system corporately in, in the case of the folks that you worked with, um, I still think that there is a saving grace. And I think that there are companies out there like Matt's and other corporate entities that are certainly capable of towing the load and helping create that positive sports experience. Kind of speak to that a little bit about, you know, maybe the, the flip side of the coin from what you uncovered and saw uh, at GPS and, and the other facets of what the company was doing and what had been exposed versus what you believe, you know, would take us in the right direction uh, within the industry. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate everything Matt was just saying about sort of early, early childhood activities and um, building that practice into uh, a child's life and then likely having that um, be reinforced and then ultimately combat, you know, uh, time in front of screens and, and um, sort of sedentary activities versus um, being physically active, but that's, that's sort of not my domain, but I qualitatively completely get it and appreciate it. Um, so I'll sort of take it from after that level. Um, <laughs> you know, I think there's, there's, there has been for the last, I don't know, 40 years or so, this, um, this spectrum of opportunity for children to participate in sports uh, or to be active, um, starting probably on the most liberal side, being, you know, self-organized sort of free play, um, you know, hop on your bike. I think we talked about it once, hop on your bike, grab your, grab your bat and glove and meet a bunch of kids at the field sure. and figure out how to play. 
and 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 be active and and there's so many benefits that come from that right this there's dispute resolution, there's creating rules, you know, shutting down right field until a lefty gets up and all sorts <laughs> of really interesting things that I think are that benefit kids by, by doing that um, socially and physically. Uh, and then sort of moving across that spectrum, you have, you know, you've got low cost kind of recreational type activities, um, you know, relatively low cost. And then the far end of that spectrum has become sort of high price point specialization, um, you know, elite, as they call it, uh, or um, individual instruction. And I think there's been a little bit of a shift, kind of a barbell, right? There's those that just don't have the financial wherewithal to slide uh, to the right. And and I think that rec level has seen attrition because of the reasons that Matt alluded to. And then the middle that may have the socioeconomic um, ability to spend have, have gotten skewed to the right you know, fear of missing out and, and the emotional purchase and, and the sales pitch on specialization being the way to go. I think um, what needs to happen, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm a capitalist, I believe that the market will find an efficient equilibrium at some point. Um, I think the challenge has been that the customer life cycle, our experience in this as a parent is relatively short, right? You have, you know, realistically to make those purchase decisions you probably have a five or six year window is about it. And so, and you're, and you're relatively uninformed, right? There's no handbook on how to do this. Um, and there's not a lot of knowledge sharing once you're out of it. You're not going to call the next cohort group of parents and say, don't blow your money on specialization <laughs> or individual instruction. It's just exactly. not going to happen. So I think there's a little bit of, uh, there's a couple things missing, right? There's no Yelp for youth sports where people can check objective reviews um, and I come back to, I think that the governing bodies, you know, are a little bit conflicted, right? They want as many kids participating, but they're not going to do anything to um, impair or damage their relationship with those that are providing those high-end services. So, so I think, you know, ultimately it comes back to the parents. It comes back to people like Matt that are very active in the industry, um, getting educated, kind of doing a self-assessment on, you know, who are we as a family, um, where, where do our values and ideals live on that spectrum? What do we want for our child um, in terms of an experience? Uh, and then ultimately more transparency and uh, the ability to know how to assess programming, you know, assess um, whether I wanna be in the rec side of the, of the spectrum or, or if I'm gonna be on a pay to play, how far do I wanna go and what type of club um, offers values and programming that align with what I'm looking for. So it's a little bit of buyer beware, but I, and I think there's, there's an educational component there that needs, that needs to happen. Do you, do you think that there is, given the fact that the, the notion for years has been that, you know, there is no corporate conscience in, in business. Uh, I think that's changing today and has been for a while, but do you think that the, the latitude exists for big companies in yeah. youth sports to make this change, to drive this change? I, I, I personally think more than, more than ever. Um, I think we're sitting at a really interesting inflection point in that regard, because, you know, if you went back, you know, pre-social media, pre, pre-mobile device in every child's hands, um, the ability for Nike or Adidas or any other major brand to gain direct access to that consumer at the youth level is virtually impossible for a variety of reasons, fragmentation, you know, age laws about communicating directly with those children and so on. Um, and so they were always a couple of degrees of separation away from them. So they had to pour money and they continue to do into sponsorships of large youth organizations or sanctioning bodies. I, I think we're at a point now where these brands recognize that these children's, these children vote with their wallets. Oftentimes they're highly principled. They are driven by um, social uh, beliefs. Um, and I think that it would do the brands well to look at investing more in education around act, act being an active individual, health and wellness, uh, values-based. And, and instead of pumping those money monies into uh, sports organizations, they could be doing more direct campaigns or educational campaigns that would align them with um, with their target audience. I, th I think that's a real opportunity right now. And I think that, you know, you touched on what, what the way there was sort of an uprising and mobilization of fans uh, 
uh, to to uh, counteract the efforts to launch the Super League, I, I think the brands are taking notice of, of voting with your wallet and, and the leverage and boycott opportunities that consumers have now. I love that phrase. And Matt, with, with regard to what you guys do at Quality Sports Hub, I mean, what, what obviously you, you try to create the experience, but what are some of the tools or methods that you guys have employed to kind of do what, what Steve's talking about? Yeah, well, first of all, um, if, there's, if, if the listeners are taking one thing away from this great podcast, it is exactly what Steve just said. Um, An inflection point is absolutely, we, we are at that crossroads with many, with many things in our society, but none other than, than what he said. So that's a really important point and a salient point and a great point. Um, in terms of Quality Sport Hub, what we aim to do is just that. So, you know, we've worked with a lot of sport organizations. We listen to what their pain points are. Um, and then it's all about creating solutions around that instead of perpetuating it. And that's another thing that Steve does well and that you do well too, is let's get to the solutions. We all know what the problems are. We can keep, you know, have another podcast about the problems, not really helping anyone. So some, one of the, the four tenants of, of quality sport management, four, te- four key tenants, number one, organizational alignment. And Steve mentioned it, culture. What's the culture of the organization? Um, that culture of the organization, who's setting that? Is that set by you know, a volunteer parent group who doesn't have any experience in creating a culture? Is that set by doing the due diligence to find out where the gaps and opportunities are from your membership before you create your culture? Um, We help people and support people through that process, number one. Number two, discipline project management. And that's all about having somebody in a mentorship and leadership capacity. A lot of organizations um, think that creating the, getting the edu- information and education, putting it in a glossy brochure or PDF, uploading it to their site, they d- they've done their job. Um, that's only half of it. You need the activation and accountability. So not only the what and the why, but the who, when, where, and how. We really need to help organizations drill down into that. And that's what we do. We help, we're there to support the organizations. We're not there to be take their jobs. We're not there to... Uh, present ourselves as smarter than them. We are there to support the executive director, president, board of director, technical director in any areas of the administration and management that they don't have experience in. And we draw people in, to your point, John, um, you know, in connecting the dots, we draw people in that have that experience that they can access whenever they want it. So it's not pushed on them. If there's a gap, we address the gap and we put the right people in the right position. Third tenant, stakeholder connectivity. So there are six key players in the athletes experience. The athletes, first of all, and you know, everyone laughs when you say the athletes, but if we're in a room and we ask people who are the key kind of key players in youth sport, you'll hear coaches and parents. It takes a while for people to actually say the athletes. And that's to the, your point earlier, the adultification. We don't actually put ourselves in the athlete's shoes they're always in the back seat when what we should be doing is as soon as possible getting them into the driver's seat of their own journey. So we've got the athletes, the parents, the officials, nothing happens without officials. We've got the coaches, we've got the surrounding support cast, whether that's strength and conditioning, whether that's physical education teachers, and we've got the administration in the club. Those are six key stakeholders. As you both know, we address those stakeholders in intellectual silos. Parents do not talk to us um, do not talk to the coach. Um, don't, if you have a problem, you know, file it here, go there. If you don't like it here, go somewhere else. We athletes, we don't even engage them in the process or ask them what they want or baseline them at the beginning of the year or communicate their development opportunities to them. And they're communicated to the parents, not the athletes. Like we, we haven't done a great job of actually figuring out how to, create that stakeholder connectivity so everyone's on the same page because if we want everyone on the uh, moving in a direction they've got to be sitting in the right spot in the boat per se so that they're rowing in the same direction and then lastly the last tenant is the integrated operating environment so how does this all how does organizational alignment discipline project management stakeholder connectivity actually appear what does it look like what what is it what happens when the coaches show up are they just showing up and running a practice or do they understand that there are 10 questions that they should ask themselves in preparation for their practice or game do they understand um you know marketing and communications are we marketing and communicating to everyone in the community in by 
at all? Or are we doing it in intellectual silos? Or are we doing that all together so that the parents can see what the coaches are getting, the coaches can see what the athletes are getting, and that takes place in an integrated operating environment. So that's really what we have helped organizations do. And John, you and I have talked a lot. That's really the gap and the missing piece is that is that support. If we're going to run community organizations, uh, often it's 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 basically by who wants to step up and raise their hand at an AGM uh, and a volunteer position that doesn't necessarily qualify for the right person in the right roles. So what has, what happened was the sport entrepreneurs came and said, well, hang on a second, we're not doing a good job over here. So I'm going to open up my Matt's football training Academy over here. um, And I'm going to take people from that experience, which hasn't been that good and then put them over here. But in doing that, Matt has to make money. So I got to train all year round. So now I have to keep those kids in that one sport all year round. And there you've got the sport entrepreneur and, and a whole other set of issues. Um, you know, and as Steven said, that's not, that doesn't paint the picture on everyone. There's lots of people that are doing good and great jobs at the community level. Um, there's lots of people that are doing great, good and great jobs at the single sport specialization level. Look at, for some people, specialization works. And for for most people, it doesn't, but for some people, it is the path. So it's, you got to be really careful about painting everyone with the same brush. Um, And, and also, as you've alluded to, you know, there are a lot of people that are doing really good things out of 10, they're doing seven really good things and we can support them for eight and nine. So it's not like everyone's starting at zero, but that's what we do uh, for organizations. Yeah, it's, I'm so, I was just thrilled inside. I was cheering because you talked about, you know, the, making the kids, the athletes, the, the the primary stakeholder. I wrote a blog last year and I said, and the title was, what if kids ran youth sports? And I suggested that, you know, we as parents and coaches don't often enough go to the athlete and say, what do you want to get out of this? What are your goals? How do you feel about the training? How does it feel to be coached by me? Famously, uh, John O'Sullivan asked in his book. So, you know, it's it's something that I think is very pertinent. And one of the guys I'm good friends with and, and kind of a mentor-mentee relationship here locally is starting a youth council in their football conference, in their football uh uh, commission so that they can get kids input. And I think that's wonderful. And, and unfortunately we as parents and certainly older folks like me, because of the way I was brought up, uh, the phenomenon is no, 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 no. We know best we're guiding, we're driving this train, you know, and we'll take it where it needs to go. And in reality, nowadays, I think that, um, not only do we build so many of those other functional, um, character traits, with kids by allowing them to step into a leadership role, but you also allow them to be in, they get, they start to sift each other out, so to speak uh, in those social skills and, and, and athletically. So um, one of the things you talked right off the top of the answer right there, Matt, you said, you know, everybody brings questions or problems to the state. They don't bring solutions. One of the things that is, has come to the forefront and is starting to gain more traction, despite the fact that it's been out there for two years is in 2018, Tom Ferry of the Aspen Institute wrote uh, an article and, and he talked about the longstanding lead that Norway as a country has taken in uh, health overall of the, of the country itself. And, and that certainly youth sports is a piece of that. And they actually, I won't go into details for the purpose of this, but, the, but they use their sports betting leg to be able to fund some of those. And that's, uh, you know, we were talking off camera Monday, Steve brought up that, you know, Governor Cuomo had started talking about that in New York right now. There's other movements throughout the United States. I'd be interested in, in each of you gentlemen's uh, thoughts on that as a viable uh, way of helping bridge the money gap. And money's not the only problem. I mean, both of you have touched on the other issues, but bridging that money gap where it does serve as a major barrier for a lot of socioeconomic groups, you know, to get into sports. Steve, if you don't mind, you know, kind of sure. talking to that. Yeah. I, I mean, money is a problem and, and it's going to be, I think it's going to be a bigger problem coming out of the pandemic if, um, on a community level. If you, if you look at, you know, federal budgets and the support that towns and municipalities have received in the past, you know, you see, you see a lot of programs being cut in individual towns right now. And it's only going to get worse, I think, because of the investment we've had to make in um, kind of bolstering the economy during the pandemic and likely 
continued um, infrastructure spend, you know, um, roads and highways and bridges and so on. So I think it's going to, I think it's a problem already and it's going to be a bigger problem. In terms of um, requiring uh, an allocation of proceeds from um, gaming, sports gaming, I think it's the least those organizations can do. Um, I, you know, I, I've got three children. Uh, they're all, one is just out of college, two are in college. We watch sports together. Um, I watch them while they're, while we're watching a game and they're looking at their mobile device and they're playing fantasy sports and so on. Uh, and then I'll look at the screen and I'll see a, you know, a bet MGM logo on, the green monster at Fenway, or I'll see my two boys talking about something they just saw on Barstool sports betting app. Um, it is becoming, in my opinion, uh, I think it's a I think it's a regressive tax for most of society. Unfortunately, those that those that get addicted and those that lose a lot of money on gaming are typically the ones that can't afford to do that. Um, and I feel like the advertising and marketing right now around sports feels a lot like, you know, Joe Camel and RJ Reynolds strategies pre 1997, where they are appealing to the kids, you know, it's this, you know, and, and it's no secret that those, those companies know that this young adult market is, is tomorrow's cigarette smokers or gamblers. And so I think that um, as much as I'm not a fan of regulation in general, I think things that have addictive characteristics to it that can be marketed to young people should be regulated, should be controlled. And if they're going to be allowed, which they will be, um, then the individual states who govern online gaming should require a reinvestment back into verticals that benefit um, young people and benefit sports and, and, and activity. So I am 100% in favor of that. Matt, what are your thoughts? Well, mic drop right there. I mean, <laughs> it can't be articulated better than that. And and listen, there's a way to do ethical business and make and generate revenue. Um, you know, we don't always have to take it to the to to the shareholder and let's make as much money for the shareholder at the expense of the consumer, um, which is our standard practice. I think in North America, um, I would I, I I have nothing to add to what Stephen said. I completely agree. And, and again, what stood out for me was it's the least that they could do, the least that they could do, given the damage that is being caused. And I, and I think, well, unfortunately, we'll get there again because we always have to wait until we see the, the, the negative side and the downsides of what we're doing. And then, you know, we can't just have common sense that that is proactive and in front of it. Um, we have to wait until, OK, you've made your gazillions. Now let's come on, let's, you know, play along and bring some of that back. Um, it's just, it's sad to see. Uh, I get, it, it is sad to see. It's frustrating to see, but yes, that is definitely something that should happen. And you look at company countries like Norway and the Scandinavian, that that's just their, that's what they prioritize. So that's the, they, they prioritize that for their populations. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to, uh, I don't want to seem like I'm just shutting that off, but I do want to transition in the interest of time. Because uh, I want to be respectful of both you gentlemen's time uh, to really a topic that I think we could uh, genuinely talk about for hours, and that is parent engagement. And and it is again, Matt, you talked about everybody always wants to talk about the problems or, or the you know they they don't bring solutions to the table. I see parent engagement as a solution to many of the youth sports problems and this gap that exists in two ways. One, I think that the parents have almost uh, bilateral responsibilities, if you will. One is, is certainly to their athlete, their child or children, uh, as they, you know, monitor what their child wants, what their benefits are from them doing sports, both from a character development standpoint, as well as physical and mental well-being. And they also have a duty to make sure that the coach that is coaching their child, looking after them, interacting with them, is well-trained and competent and caring and, and does so in a manner that it challenges their child, but also looks out for their welfare. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, I, I, Matt, you and I have discussed parent engagement on a number of levels. And, and one of the things that I, I fear a little bit is that when I look across the landscape, and when I first talked to you, I, I, I brought this up. I just recently interviewed Heath Esslinger of A Better Way Athletics, 
I, I interviewed uh, Gordon McClellan working with parents in sport out of the UK. You've got John O'Sullivan with changing the game project. You've got the Aspen Institute. You've got positive coaching Alliance, Jim Thompson's group. Um, and then you've got other companies like yourself, Matt, with Quality Sports Hub. You've got a community revitalization program, which you're a, a part of that as well. But on some level, at the parent engagement piece of this, there's they're not connecting. They're, they're, the people in Vancouver know you guys exist in other places that you've helped. The people where in, in Seattle know so-and-so. And, and, and there's not a movement to bring this together. So how, I'm going to let you start off with this, Matt. How important do you think at the grassroots level, John Davis's of the world all over the United States and Canada and the world saying, hey, parents, in our area, here's what we need to do. Yeah, it's critical. Obviously, they're number one, they're the primary partner. Um, they will be the one that makes the decisions and the, the, the primary decision maker, and they are the primary funder. So th with that comes the responsibility of, and, and Stephen touched on it earlier, is, you know, do your homework and understand and, 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 you know, it's an opportunity to match your values, what you want for your kids, what you want for their experiences with what people are offering. And, you know, it is buyer beware. Take the time to do your homework. It's, it's interesting that we, as parents, and I am a parent, we take the time to do our homework in almost every other facet. We would never um, just have a babysitter show up without us vetting them or uh, getting some information or knowing they took a course or having the qualifications or anything else. We would you know, never put them in any other situation without doing that homework, but we put them in sports and just let them roll. So that, that speaks to the opportunity that sport has to up their ante to make sure that we're actually delivering and connecting with those parents in a meaningful way that shows them value. Um, and, and the parents on their, on their side, it is a responsibility. It's a wake up call. I mean, you, you can't have week after week after week of stories of abuse and um, scandal and corruption and, and all of these things. And, and, you know, it's like Steven said at the beginning, you go through it as a parent in your five-year cycle. You realize at the end of five years, what, what just happened to you. You're not standing in the front of the line going, hey, listen, I, I was totally hosed. You got to be careful. Here's what you should do. That doesn't happen. That trans, transfer of knowledge doesn't happen. And that's one of the things that all of the people you mentioned are actually doing. They are transferring that knowledge from their, their respective D1 coach and Gordon McClellan, all great people, John O'Sullivan, they are transferring that knowledge. It just requires a lot more of us to do that. And when more of us do that, and let's just go back to that Super League again, you can see the power. Grand opening on Tuesday, grand closing on Thursday. Uh, uh, so that, that, that's how much power that parents and people have. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to me, Stephen, when you think back to in the prologue of your book, you talked about, you know, visiting the, uh, uh, the baseball park, the uh, uh, Cooperstown, Cooperstown Dream Park. Yeah. And then, you know, fast forward through the years, uh, you know, from that experience as a parent, uh, all the way to where you are now, and, and just how much importance from your foxhole do you do you think that this parent engagement piece is critical to the success of not only youth sports but really the growth in terms of our kids? Yeah, I I agree with Matt. It's it's absolutely critical. But while I was listening to him, I was thinking, man, you know, you talk about a a five year life cycle or whatever it is. Um, I I I'm I'm sort of I feel ignorant to the solutions, the potential solutions, which is remarkable as I sit here and think about it. I just came through it with three kids. And, you know, other than being aware of the organizations that you listed, um, we were sort of taught as parents that you drop your child off, uh, you attend the games, you never, you never ping the coach, you never you know, interfere, which I think has merit most of the time, but you become, you're, you're sort of trained to step back a little bit. Um, so I, I don't, I think it is critical that, that you're, that parents are educated, that there's greater transparency, um, that somehow parents are equipped with the ability to assess, like Matt said, um, are the values and characteristics of the programming 
that your child is, is in? Are, are those consistent with your expectations? Um, but I, I, I don't think it's easy. You know, I think it, I think it's, I think it takes, um, it's going to take a little bit of an uprising from parents. It's going to take a lot of education. And I think it, it may end up taking, you know, governing bodies along with global brands to start delivering that message repeatedly. Um, I think there's a lot of work to get there, but it's critical. I do. I think that it, it, it is possible. And I'll cite an example. And and I'm Steve, I'm not sure if you are aware of him, but I know Matt knows him personally. But Nate Baldwin, when he was in uh, in the role as a Parks and Rec director, you know, one of the things that struck me in the, th- the conversations I've had and the things I've read about what he did during his time there was that a lot of people assumed up front that because these were parks and rec grassroots leagues and volunteer coaches, that coaches would not be interested in giving more of what they already were giving their time to gain more education and certainly not pay for it out of their pocket. But what he found was exactly the opposite. The coaches that really wanted to get involved and that bought into the culture they were developing was it, were absolutely willing to pay out of pocket to get the certifications and to become better coaches. And I know, you know, I used to start, I mean, 20 years ago when I started uh, really getting cognizant of what I needed to do to engage with parents as a coach, you know, we started every season, no matter what sport we were coaching with a parent engagement meeting. And I used to bring out two contracts, one for the player, one for the parent. And, and this was a way of reinforcing that, Hey, this is a team effort between athlete, parent, and coach. And there needs to be communication in all aspects, you know, and, and, and I caution the parents about certain, did I make mistakes? Absolutely. As both a sports parent and as a coach, big time. Um, but you learn and you live and learn. And, and I think that there's room for growth in all of those aspects, because I think every parent has a dual responsibility and that is the welfare of their child and the credibility and competency of the coach who's helping their child. And, I, I want to bring one other thing up, and I'll ask Matt to talk to this initially, is that one of the things we really don't know and haven't seen the long-term effect of is how is COVID going to affect the child development piece of this equation? And, you know, it, it starts in infancy when a child is bottle or breastfeeding and, and they're bonding with their mother and they can't talk, so it's all facial communication. Well, now that the child's seeing this. You know, he's not even seeing the full expression of the mother's face when that bonding takes place. Now, that, that's a, a minor isolated example, but it's very common. And now you get kids where we have we have come to a period in the last 12 months where we've seen an increase in anxiety, depression, mental illness, or at least identification of where it existed before. And maybe we didn't know about it. Spousal abuse, domestic violence, all of these things have massive impacts on our children. And and uh, so Matt, coming out of COVID, I mean, what are some of the things based on your experience that you think we need to be cognizant of from that child development standpoint and really have a, have a microscope on as we go forward and develop, you know, different programs? Yeah, don't waste a great pandemic is the saying, right? And what, what is, it's just reinforced exactly what the kids, uh, there was a study done by Visick and, and Mannix about what kids prioritize in their sport experience, fun, friends, fair play, friendly competition, finish the season better than they started from the kids' mouths. Those were the order uh, of the top five priorities. Winning was number 48 in the study that they did. Um, so to come back out of COVID and my concern and my worry and our worry should be is that uh, clubs get the money, they get the revenue, they get the support, and they go right back to doing what they were doing before, uh, which to your point is probably not what our the, the kids are, are looking for. It's not what they need. It's not what they want. Um, and it's not what's going to help them. So uh, that that's what we have to really be. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. We're not going to see the, the negative effects um, for a long, long time, not the negative effects. We're not going to see the real effects of COVID for a long time. And you brought up that connection. Um, you brought up the anxiety. You brought up a lot of these things. Hopefully don't waste a great pandemic. We actually take that opportunity to not only build it back better, I don't even like that word because it wasn't actually that great in a lot of instances, rebuild, retool, rethink um, how we're going to structure that environment to, to deliver what the consumer and the kids want and need. So 
all the points that have been made by yourself today and Stephen today about putting the consumer first, asking the kids what they want. Um, and, and again, I, I go back to the, the, the funnel. The more people we can have at the entry level to that funnel or pyramid, the better that the whole system is going to be. And that is inclusive of high performance. I don't want to come off as sounding like I'm anti-high performance. I was a high performer and, and there's nothing wrong with that high performance. We need that, but we need the high performance, not at the expense of, we need it in addition to. So I think that that's, those are some of the things that we're going to have to watch when we come back and really start asking and having more of that dialogue, like you've both mentioned throughout this, this segment with the kids. How are you doing? How are we doing? How are you feeling? Yeah, Steven? I agree. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you said. I, I don't, I'm not equipped to um, opine on what impact this will have on kids' development. I have no idea. But um, I, I just hope that people, you know, um, use this time to reassess, again, what their expectations are, what they want out of um, youth sports for their children. Um, hopefully they've rediscovered that it's not a bad thing to slow down a little bit and spend time with your kids at home and um, get a little more creative and resourceful on how, on how to stay active. And um, not that I want the industry to, to back up, but I think um, it's an opportunity, like Matt said, to sort of hit the reset button and reevaluate what this marketplace should look like. Steve, from a, maybe something that, you know, you are, and, and when you look at the tentacles that, that, went out from the various business mm -hmm. interests that, that with the company you were part of and that you wrote about in your book. Um, do you have any advice for parents who are even in the case of where the high performers that, that Matt mentioned, you know, if, if they're, if their child is at an age or at a performance level where a third party has assessed in conjunction with those parents, this program may be best for your child right now. And they've identified that that child does have a goal and wants mm -hmm. to, as a willing participant, get better and specialize at some point in their life. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm with Matt. I'm not, a, I don't bash that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a lot of wolves in sheep's clothing out there. So from what you experience, are there little warning signs or are there things that parents should look for in these you know, showcases, combines, leagues, or anything like that that's going on that they might, that might throw up some red flags in their mind? I think, I mean, number one, it would be, you know, talk to, try to talk to others in your community who have gone through the process. Might be a little bit uncomfortable. You know, they're not part of the, they're not part of your cohort group, but, you know, it's easy enough to get to um, the parents who just graduated out of that and get their honest assessment of, of what the experience was like, um, you know, uh, I, I think it would be for me more about really be trying to be objective and assess what is best for your child. Um, and I know that's not easy, but you know, it, it sometimes it's you know, be careful what you wish for. If, if, if you move too aggressively too early towards specialization or allocate far too much time in your child's life to an individual sport, um, you're embedding that uh, element into that child's self-identity as well. And if, it, if at some point that is taken from them, you're dealing with a whole nother set of issues, right? So I keep coming back to, I think it's, I think sport is amazing. I think it's an essential part. Most kids, but I think parents need to take a deep breath, evaluate what they want, evaluate their child's personality, their child's individual characteristics and how it fits in their life. Um, and then at that point, you can start to assess programs that you're aware of, word of mouth recommendations, talking to other parents that have been through it, um, meeting those people that operate those organizations and asking the tough questions, asking, you know, what are their values? How do they really operate? And, you know, do that in a professionally skeptical way. Um, we have a bias towards trust. And when it comes to your kids, I would, I would tell people, 
do your best to push that bias towards trust away. You, you know, to Matt's point earlier, you would not hand your child to a babysitter that you did not have numerous recommendations for, background checks, et cetera. Uh, it's the least we can do for our kids with putting them in sports programs as well. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, I think that uh, even with the change in times and operating methods now for how parents deal with um, multiple kids, uh, as they, even if they only have one child, but if they happen to have two or more, um, it becomes, you know, the temptation is to allow other things to step in and take the place of good, involved, active parenting. You know, no kid pops out with an owner's manual. You know, we all go through this making mistakes as we go. Um, but, but the essence of parenting has shifted and some of the ways we approach certain things. And I brought this up the other day in a conversation with someone, you know, 15 years ago, the three of us had, we at that time had a 12 year old daughter would never have considered calling another man that we didn't know and having her ride somewhere in a car with him, you know, without tremendous due diligence, but parents every day now go to their Uber app and order a car to pick up their kid at school. And, and that exact thing is taking place. Now it's, so the times have changed, but the social and, and moral and individual responsibilities haven't. And that's where, uh, you know, kind of w- what I think we're getting at, Matt, I wanted to give you, uh, you know, as a parting shot, try to, uh, if you can uh, let folks know uh, a, a little bit more about what Quality Sports Hub can do and uh, any of the efforts or uh, programs that you guys have going on and then where folks can uh, reach out to get to you or the company itself. Yeah, thanks so, so much for that opportunity. Um, you know, there's lots of good organizations. You mentioned quite a few, so I'm not going to try to sing. We're the only game in town. Um, QualitySportHub.com. Basically, Matt at QualitySportHub. Dot com. If, if anyone needs support, if anyone wants some insights, uh, we're here to help. We're here to serve. We're here to help. Um, so that's how people can reach out. Outstanding. And Stephen, if you could, um, I, you know, we talked about the, uh, we didn't go into great depth in the book, but the, for those that, that haven't seen it or read it, Front Row Seat, it's an absolutely awesome book. I will tell you, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to give Stephen a little bit of a hard time. I, when I first heard about the book from Matt, I thought, wait a minute, this guy's a CPA. How riveting can the book be? And, um, and, and I will tell you that I did not put the book down. I mean, I do reading every morning and there was nothing else in front of me until I finished this book. I, it was that uh, just insightful, that informative. And, and the way you wrote it was just tremendous. I mean, your storytelling ability was outstanding. So I just, you know, kudos to you, but could you give us a little teaser uh, about the book coming out? Or are you willing to do that at this point? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So the, um, and I am, I'm an accountant. I, I never had a desire to write. Um, I wrote that first book, um, really, to be honest, for myself, just to kind of purge and get out of my mind what had gone on in the prior couple of years. Um, and then was convinced to publish it so that maybe people would learn something from it. Um, and then I, you know, I have found since then uh, this new habit, this new hobby, I guess, of, of writing and I'm enjoying it. So the second book is uh, literally everything that has transpired since Front Row Seat came out in November of 19 um, related to um, a soccer company that we owned called Global Premier Soccer. So um, it's uh, really interesting in terms of um, we were dealing with the part of the iceberg that was above the water and thought that that was a lot. Little did we know what we were going to learn after the fact. And it's actually, I think it's also a testament to the fact that um, so many former employees and others um, came forward because they read the first book and felt both a sense of responsibility and I guess a sense of comfort that they could finally come forward and, and um, share their experiences. So it's another um, kind of buyer beware, but um, hopefully it has uh, also some, you know, redeeming qualities about the human condition and resiliency and, and things like that as well. Well, I'll be excited to pick up a copy and read it. Uh, that book will be out in June. And uh, I want to really say from, from me to you gentlemen, uh, from my heart, seriously, thank you. In this process, uh, Matt, as an expert in the industry and someone that, uh, you know, I, I, uh, 
connected with. Uh, I have found you to be just so approachable, so uh, you know helpful in, in so many ways, and connecting me with other people to include Stephen and, and Stephen. The the degree to which uh, you know you've been willing to chat several times offline, talk about the book, and help me grow. Uh, from, from me to you, both you gentlemen, thank you very much for expanding my view of things. And I think we've covered a ton of stuff here today that will help out whether people listen or see this uh, on YouTube later on with regard to the youth sports industry. And, you know, we'll just keep plowing away and see what happens. Hopefully this crop will come up and be a bumper crop in the future as we change the way things look. Awesome. Thank you, John. Really appreciate it. No yeah, problem. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for providing the platform. Well, Matt Young and Stephen Griffin, really appreciate you guys being here today. Uh, for those of you that uh, haven't done so, be sure you subscribe to the podcast and uh, let us know how we're doing. Leave a review. I uh, really appreciate that because we always are in the, in the mode of uh, like any good athlete or any good parent to improve and try to make things better. So until next time, take care and God bless. Mm -hmm.